All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, I kind of just want to open up. You saw the class title and description. What drew you here? Why, why are you here? What is your specific reason for, in a couple of sentences, maybe? I want to thrive. Mm. Yeah. I want to do a little better than I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. I want to help others thrive. I don't know what it's like to be marginalized, and I need to understand that better. Wow, thank you. Yeah. I want to know if I'm making people feel that way. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Maybe another. Yeah, so I, I appreciate all your hearts. Um, this, this class is very specific, and I, and I designed it with um, specificity in mind. Um, and so, but I think there are some broad principles that we can extrapolate to apply to our own context, uh, despite what kind of marginalization we might feel, what kind of otherness that we might encounter. Uh, and so I, I do want to start off by saying, like, this conversation is very complicated. It's, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of layers. And people like Jerry Taylor and Don McLaughlin have been, doing, have been dedicating decades of, of their, their time and effort and their work into unpacking marginalization, systemic injustice. So th these are very deep and complicated issues. This class is not, we're exploring some elements of that, right? But it's not about that. It's what do we do in spite of those things, right? What do we do in spite of uh, um, systemic injustice? What do we do in spite of feeling otherness? And so I wanna, I wanna be as honest as possible. I want you guys to feel uh, safe to ask questions and to comment. And so if at any time you feel the spirit compelling you to raise your hand or ask questions, then feel free to do so. And what I wanna start off kind of sharing my, my story. In my formative years, I, I noticed this feeling of otherness, this perpetual nagging feeling of otherness, that, that you didn't belong. I, I, I was born into a world where Everything that I saw on TV, everything that Hollywood depicted about Asian Americans was either depicted through the lens of racist Asian caricatures right, or, or just invisibility together. And so you look at this movie, Matt Damon, The Great Wall. What's the problem with this? It's perpetuating a singular narrative, right? He's saving the Asian American, the, the Asians in China. He's, he's the white savior. And so I grew up not seeing a single healthy Asian American uh, person on TV uh, or, or, or depicted, a, an Asian American depicted in a healthy way. They were all relegated to racist caricatures or martial artists. They were never in normal roles. And that did something to me. And people would make fun of our food, which, by the way, has its roots back a century, a century where, where in, in, in response to the influx of Chinese immigrants, America uh, uh, started sending this signal, like that Asians eat mystery meat, rats, right, dogs, and horses. And so these messages per pervaded me throughout my childhood. People would make fun of me growing up, and I felt like an other. I felt like an other. People making fun of my language, TV making fun of my language, ching chong, ching chong, all these things, right? And I'm guilty of doing that. We're all probably guilty at one point of another. But that stunts your identity development. It distorts the way you see yourself. I hated being Asian. I hated being Vietnamese. I did not want to speak my language. I did not want to look. I did not want chinky eyes. By the way, this is a white dude, yellow face. I didn't want chinky eyes. I didn't want to look the least bit Asian. Um, and so this nagging feeling of otherness intensified. As I grew older and realized that there's just no space where I fit in, I find my faith at 18 years old and I step into a church of Christ. And um, for me, I grew up in a multi-ethnic community. I had people of color who were teachers, or teachers who were people of color. Suddenly, I stepped into a space where I'd never seen so many white Americans concentrated in a building. Never had I seen anything like that, and it was so, and I felt like, okay, like, something is out of place. I didn't have the language to identify, but I felt like I didn't belong. Something was amiss, but there were a lot of cultural cues, a lot of jokes. People would call me, Christians would call me Asian, call me ninja, you know, like, just, just I mean, my name is Tian. Uh, and so, reminding me that I didn't belong. Reminding me that 
the, the, the cultural cues, even, the food, even. You know, growing up, people make, they make fun of Asian food. Like, we eat mystery meat, what is that, it smells, or whatever. Um, and so you don't, as a, re, as a, re, as a reaction, that you don't even want to eat your own food. Well, I stepped into the church, and these Church of uh, Christ potluck, and no disrespect, but I encountered casseroles. <laughs> and I was like, why is there raisins in everything? Why is everything a casserole? Why is there milk in everything? This is so weird. But to me, casserole was the embodiment. It was an expression of, like, yeah, you don't belong in this space. I didn't grow up with that stuff. You know, and, and so sometimes I feel the, the need to make a video saying, like, I'm going to try this exotic thing, or like, oh, this is, what is that even? To, to, to kind of express the shock value. And so I, I felt like I didn't belong. Um, it, it continued to intensify. I went to a Church of Christ undergraduate institution. And I remember this, this one moment in 2015. Um, in 2015, we, the administration of our program had, had extended this job offer. They said there was a church nearby that was looking for preachers, and it was a great opportunity for us students to, to get an experience, to make a little bit of money. And so we were like, okay, so how do we apply? And he was like, we'll get back to you. Two weeks later, I inquired about the position. We were sitting in the lounge, and they said, the, one of the, the administrators said, here's the thing, I asked them if they were okay with, we have people from Africa, China, California, uh, we have people from around the world. Is it okay if they preach as well? And I don't know why you would ask something like that. And, and then I was like, so can, can we preach? And he said, here's what they said. They only want Caucasian preachers. This was in 2015. And I thought, like, I had only been a Christian for six years, and I thought, what, like, wait, huh? I was so taken aback. I was jarred, and I thought, like, I thought we're Christians. We're Christians. We're supposed to love one another. What's going on here? I didn't know how to make sense of my experience. So maybe I did something I shouldn't have done. I went to social media and I said, man, there's a church that said they only want white preachers. No specifics, no details, nothing. And, that, and people were trying to stand in solidarity. The administration caught wind of that, called me in the office and said, why are you creating a problem? And I say, and I was like, what, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Now here's the problem with that. The people of color in, this or in, in our cohort were not able to preach and get experience and make money. Our white brothers were able to go. Why am I creating? The problem was already created when they said that they only wanted Caucasian preachers. What do you mean let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt? And, and so I was so deeply disturbed by that because I thought it's, it's clear. Uh, and, then, and, then they would say, and then they continue to say stuff like, well, Asian Americans don't face racism anyway. What, what are you talking about? Like, what is this that we're dealing with right now? Ah, we're the most diverse program. It turns out that the church itself, they, they welcomed everyone, but it was the person who was looking for preachers who was very racist. But the administration's response to me conveyed a message. You don't belong here. Like, we don't have your back. Ah, some people might say, ah, oh, that's the South. It doesn't happen now. It's really exhausting being the only ethnic minority a part of every leadership structure I've been a part of in the Church of Christ. And, and, I, and, and, there, and, and let me clarify, like there's, there's people and our leaders who, who try their best to listen to my story and amplify my voice, but sometimes you just feel like you don't belong. Cultural cues, microaggressions. There have been moments when, um, during the Trump election, it was very difficult. I never cared about politics. I was always apathetic because my parents were refugees. They just wanted to survive here. And, and there was this, this, this polemic, this rhetoric that I was hearing that my church was conveying. These illegal aliens need to get out of here. Uh, these refugees, they need to stay in their own country, let, fix their own issues. So I was hearing this, and I was thinking, it was, wasn't a political issue for me. I was thinking, why aren't we called to love people? But it was very personal because my father was an undocumented refugee. My family were refugees from the Vietnam War. This white church of mine that I was ministering and preaching at had no idea the message that they were conveying. You don't belong here, Tian. Your family should have stayed in their own country. 
Maybe it was unintentional and there's some really good people there. But the nagging feeling continued. And then you, you I mean, it wasn't too long ago. I, again, I love, love, love my church. I love where I'm at. But my very first Sunday, someone comes right up to me after worship service and says, speak French to me. And I'm like, huh? It, it wasn't like, hey, do you know how to speak French? Speak French to me. What are, what are you talking about? Well, you're from Vietnam, right? No. I'm from California. I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm from California. Well, you should know how to speak French. No. First of all, like, it's the northerners who know how to speak French, and it's a, it's a wealthy language. So it's, it's a language that wealthy people can speak. So no, like, even then I wouldn't be able to speak it. I walked down one night after a church event, and another old Person screams out, I'm walking, it's nine o'clock at night, they scream out, Chao ban. I'm looking, I'm like, huh? They go, Chao ban. What are you, huh? I'm speaking Vietnamese. I'm saying hi, friend. I'm like, first of all, no. Like, what language are you speaking? Second of all, bro, I speak English. Like, I get it. Like, you're trying to relate on some level, but it was so, so obnoxious. Now here's the thing, it's not just a singular event. Over and over and over and over. Where are you from, Hmong land? You from Vietnam? You know, what language do you speak? Oh, you speak good English for an Asian. Over and over you have messages like these that you grew up with and people in your church conveying the same thing. You feel like a perpetual foreigner, that you don't belong. And of course, it pervades our, our system as well. Here's a notification I received in 2017 by the Department of Justice saying that Toyota agreed to settle claims because its loan pricing policies resulted in African-American, Asian, and Pacific Islander, buy, Islander buying um, buyers paying higher interest rates than white buyers, regardless of their credit worthiness. Department of Justice in 2017 we paid higher APRs because of our name, right? This is not just like, oh, you're just reading into it. Like, this is like legit. We got like 70 bucks for it. <laughs> I sat there and I laughed. I, I, dug some, I dug a little bit more. I did some research and found that like it was just individual um, um, dealers that were discriminating based on names. But this is the stuff that makes you feel like you don't belong, but I was still in the church, and I don't know what God was doing, even though these churches were marginalizing spaces, I didn't feel like I belonged, I don't know what God was doing, but I, I felt like God was still calling me to ministry, God was still calling me to my context, I had to do something, because I was becoming so consumed by rage and cynicism, and, and acute dejection, and I was ministering from a very toxic, unhealthy place, I was leaking, I was... Um, I was leaking, I was complaining often, I was preaching angry sermons, teaching angry classes. But I think that no matter what context we're in, that we're still called to love people. Right? We're still called to that higher ethic of love. No matter how much people mistreat you. And so I found these verses very striking that spoke to me. Jesus says, in John 10, 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full, an abundant life. In, in John 4, 14, he says to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, the Samaritan woman occupied a very precarious social space. She, she was the intersectionality of being both a Samaritan and a woman put her in a very low strata in society. I mean, the, the cycling through husbands indicated her, her social desperation. She was very marginalized and very wounded, and yet Jesus still says, you drink from me and you will never thirst. You can thrive. You can thrive in spite of your marginalization. And so for me, the, the kingdom of God has implications for both the future and the now. Right? We don't talk about the now. What does it mean? What, what, what did Jesus' saving works accomplish? for the here, so that we can flourish, 
so that we can receive his shalom and his peace and find contentment despite sinfulness and despite our marginalization, despite all of that stuff. And so while we collaborate with God and his missional work of dismantling injustice and bringing about his kingdom fully revealed, we still eagerly await for justice and we await um, for restoration. In the meantime, we find a way to flourish. We experience God's shalom. But we have to be intentional and we have to put in work. We have to be very intentional about if we want to thrive. I want to stop there real quick before I get into the tools that I want to share with you. Any, anything that resonated with you, anything that struck you, anything that might have been confusing in, in the story I just shared, Yeah. I was just going to say, um, I have family that live in the South, and I think it's really, and they're Christians, and it just blows my mind that I hear them say there is no more racism. And clearly, and I knew that that wasn't true, but I, I don't walk in shoes of a colored person, but I wish I had better ways of explaining that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A conversation helps, and we'll get into the, some of the tools that we can use. Yeah, Kyle. You know, no, I was just thinking you're probably going to answer this question because all I keep thinking in my head is what are, what are my microaggressions? Because mm-hmm. I, as far as I know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not racist. I, I don't do racist things, but that doesn't mean that there aren't those things that I'm doing, like, like the example of the dude speaking Vietnamese or the other person assuming that you, you speak French. Like, are those things that I'm, I'm trying to relate cross-culturally that are actually coming mm. across as unintentionally marginalizing? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I think that's where the majority of my congregation, when we have those, those conversations that make people feel uncomfortable, like mm. if I bring up racism from the pulpit, like now I'm being political, okay? Yeah. Um, that's the thing where they really struggle with is that, well, I'm not overtly racist, therefore, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's someone else doing it. That's, that's the thing I wrestle with. Yeah, and, and that's a very uh, loaded and layered conversation to have, right? And it's an ongoing conversation because right. I'm guilty of doing the same thing, right? Like, and, and that's what makes it so complicated. I prefer someone to call me a chink and say, go back to your country, which people have done multiple, like many times, Go back to your country. I am in my country. Because I know to stay away from them. You racist. There is no doubting that you are racist. Uh, Microaggressions, however, complicates issues because we don't know if it's coming from a place of naivety or coming from a place of legit racism, discrimination. We all have our implicit biases. And we have to unpack those and work through those through the grace of the gospel and the power of the spirit, we have to do that, right? But I think conversations, there's a way to go about it. If this man would have said, hey, I've been trying to practice Vietnamese. How, how, is, is, does this sound right? Or like, or hey, Tim, do you speak Vietnamese? There's a way to go about it. Uh, do you speak Vietnamese? Uh, uh, like shouting it like it's so obnoxious. Um, uh, and, and so I think knowing the person helps. Right? Knowing the person, and not just outright, like, if you barely know the person and just inquiring about these things, I think, um, because it, for, for us, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's the history, the TV. It's not just what you said. It's the baggage that comes with it throughout history and our experiences. And so it's the death by a thousand cuts that says, okay, there's something about you, because nobody asked my wife that. Hey, what language do you speak? Right? Um, and so I think intimate conversations, I think, can help. Because, yeah, sometimes you do. You do wonder, like, hey, are you from somewhere else? Yeah. So um, I, I'm not American, so I'm Japanese. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, but I really appreciate what you said, because I feel the same way. Even though this is not my country, it's just to go back. There's a place for me to go back to. But that's not the case with my kids. And I think part, I have a 14-year-old and 11-year-old. And they're experiencing similar things as well. They're half Caucasian. But they really um, relate to the Asian part of themselves. And I think that uh, my concern is that they're seeing this coming from Christians. 
yeah. and really affecting their faith. And how would I, why would I want to be a part of a group of people who treat people like myself and others like me in this way? Mm-hmm. So it's not only serious for me, but really serious for how does the church address it? Because kids like mine, how are they going to see their Christian walk? I want them to see genuinely their walk and their experiences that they've been discriminated against. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Hearing stories like that, amplifying voices, I think it's very important. And, and I'm going to go into that. Um, we need to allow people to share their stories because we are dominated by a dominant story, a dominant narrative. Right? It's that we are a melting pot and we're all one big happy people. And we're just Americans. No, you're pushing white American culture on me. A better analogy would be the salad bowl. We all bring our differences to the table and we celebrate it. Melting pot is a myth that says get rid of your cultural self and your ethnic self and assimilate to white America. And so when churches say we're multicultural, I said, no, you ain't. You might be multi-ethnic, but your culture is very white. You can't be, if, if you have Asian Americans, let's say you have Chinese Americans in your church. You're not multicultural unless you've celebrated Chinese New Year with them. Have you celebrated, it is Asian American Pacific Islander Month now. We're not multicultural unless we celebrate that. Right? We're, invisibility is also damaging. You don't see yourself. It's erasure. And so you don't want to celebrate it. Right? Um, and so... And so, so we, we do have to get rid of the, 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 the myth of the melting pot, um, the myth of the, the uh, um, we're just Christians, we're just Americans. Can we celebrate our differences? Can we embrace our differences? But I want to get into some tools. First tool, I think it's very critical, is truth-telling. Truth-telling. I'll pull some quotes from Brene Brown. I'm going to pull a lot of quotes from people because they say it better than I do. Speak truth to BS. <laughs> Be civil. True belonging. She talks about true belonging in her book, Braving the Wilderness. In other words, how do you thrive even though you don't belong? She says, true belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. This is a very, very powerful quote for me that I was reading and meditating on as I was navigating these spaces, especially during the election. Especially during the election. We have to be real with people. Um, If you're a person of color and you're suffering from microaggressions, um, I think that we have to be honest with people so that they can see that it hurts us. And it is very difficult to do that. It is very complicated. There's an article um, uh, called Racial Microaggressions in the Asian American Experience by scholar Darren Sue and other uh, scholars. They had found that in their interview of multiple Asian Americans that silence was the default in the face of microaggressions. Because here's what they experienced. Was it racist? Was it, was it, it it's not like using the N-word, it's not saying chink. Is it racist? Is it not racist? Am I gonna seem overly sensitive? Am I going to see? So they would withhold their, um, their truth-telling. But what that did was that, that incurred belittlement. They felt belittled, rage, self-blame, and invisibility. It was worse on their mental health. It exacerbated their mental health. And so truth-telling and being real is critical. It's complicated, but it's very, very important. And it serves... Um, in fact, I had to do it a couple of days ago, and I really didn't want to. Uh, but I, mean, I don't really want to share that part right now. But um, there are there truth telling serves two purposes. One, it allows the offended to be authentic and to find some relief. Two, it gives the offender an opportunity to be aware 
an opportunity to repent. That's why truth-telling is so absolutely critical. Uh, so I want to move on to the next slide here. You guys still running? Yeah. The article is called Asian, wait, Racial, Racial Microaggressions and the Asian American Experience by Daryl Sue. How do you spell the last name? Uh, it's Sue, S-U-E. Yeah. And so again, it's hard dealing with these things that, that push you to the periphery. It's easier dealing with someone who says, go back to your own country, because I know I can just avoid this person, right? To telling is critical. So you give the person, the, the offender, an awareness. They don't know that they're hurting someone unless you reveal your experience. And so for our allies and for those who want um, uh, to be more aware, I would encourage you to make space to listen to that. Because again, it's not just a comment that is, that is detached from, from history. It's a comment that's very loaded. Right? that carries a lot of baggage with it. Asian Americans have been, have been marginalized. And, and even Asian, the, the, the word Asian Americans, it's, it's, we're not a monolithic group. There's a, a, a vast spectrum of different kinds of Asian Americans with different migration experiences, with different socioeconomic statuses. Right? And so I cannot speak on behalf of all Asian Americans. Um, so when I say Asian Americans, I mean specifically my experience as a Vietnamese American, child of refugees, of, of fa fam parents who ran from the Vietnam War. And so we, we speak up, we give the people the opportunity to be mindful of their words. Here's the thing, so many people make fun of Asian names just blatantly. Uh, there's, there's been people in my current context who have done it unabashedly. And shamefully, I have not mustered up the courage to say anything yet. Um, and I'm hoping that I do in a very graceful way. It doesn't, it's, it's not, I know it's not ill-intentioned, right? But... True telling is important. So here's an example. Um, by the way, this, we, we call it counter-narratives. Counter, truth telling, um, counter-narratives can be a tool of truth telling. Counter-narrative challenges the dominant narrative. There's a danger of a single story. The model minority myth, for example, all Asians are wealthy. All Asians drive Teslas and Mercedes and BMWs. All Asians are the same. No, we, we hide the, 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 the poverty that refugees are, are suffering from, right? We're not all the same. And by the way, it's so many people have, ugh. <laughs> um, and so Robert Chang talks about using counter narratives. And so let me give you an example. I had a, a member in my church who was uh, very vocal about refugees not belonging here, illegal aliens being a threat to our democracy, a threat to our society. And so I, had a, I preached a sermon and I had conversations with this individual, highlighting scripture that talks about welcoming the foreigner, but also talking about, hey, this is what I hear. You see, my parents were running from the Vietnam War, which by the way, intensified, it was intensified by colonialism. It was their response. The Vietnam War rose as a response to French colonization and Chinese colonization, and people were tired of being um, um, oppressed, and America jumps in and makes the war worse. We, intense, we, we exacerbated the issue, and my parents would have died had they stayed in Vietnam. So they fled for their lives like any reasonable parent would do. Any reasonable person would not stay there and say, hey, take me and place me in a re-education camp. Hey, chop my head off, right? They're gonna run. And I talked about how like, look, like, I, feel, I feel marginalized, I don't feel included when you, you make these kinds of comments. In fact, when you say illegal alien, it, it makes me feel like my family and I, we're less than human, right? We're less than human, that we're not even made in the image of God. And I know God loves me, God embraces us. My parents were doing the best they could do. And if, and if you held to what you're saying now, then it means that you, don't, you wouldn't want me here. And so he came up to me and said, Tian, you know, in the military, I was trained to see people as others first. 
I was trained to see people as enemies first. And this has been my default thinking for so long. And now you've shown me a different side, a different story, that these are people, and that we're called to love people before anything else. I didn't expect that. I really didn't. And so counter-narratives, truth-telling, um, provides that space for repentance and a change of heart. The spirit operates through truth-telling. Any comment or anything on that? Question. One thing I want to remind us of is this. Imperfect people offer imperfect love, which inevitably creates imperfect social spaces. We tell the truth, but I firmly believe that we have to season it with some grace. There's a time for boldness, and even telling the truth is bold in and of itself. Confronting and calling something out is bold in and of itself. But for me to thrive, and this is for me, for me to thrive, I had to realize that, okay, now we're not talking about um, confronting, uh, what, 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 what I'm talking about right here is like relationships, people in the church, right? And most people I found try not to come from a hurtful place. Um, and, and so, yeah, realizing that the church is a broken space and the, the, the church can only offer imperfect love. And so while I tell the truth, I've got to season it with grace and mercy because some people honestly are just naive. Right? I bet you that guy didn't know that he was like being deeply offensive by saying, um, by shouting that. Vietnamese phrase. Any question? Okay. Secondly, pursue solidarity. Okay, so like I said, I, I went to a Church of Christ undergrad institution. I had nothing but white male professors. I couldn't relate. I didn't know why. I didn't have the language. I, I'm a pastor at these churches white culture churches, I couldn't relate. I didn't know why. I felt so different. I felt so dejected. I was like, maybe I'm the weird one. I felt so alienated. And it was, it was deeply, deeply painful. Um, and and so in order to thrive, in order to combat that cynicism and that isolation, because here's the thing, like, Satan's weak. He's weak, and he attacks God's warriors when they're in isolation. And so it's when you feel isolated that Satan has a stronger grip. And so what I did was I, I, I used, tapped into whatever network I had to find people who maybe had similar experiences to me. I didn't know, right? But I reached out, and I found, you know what? That my experience was not any different than what a lot of other Asian Americans might feel. Why Asian Americans struggle to feel at home in white majority churches. This is an article by the Gospel Coalition. I started reading books from Asian Americans. By the way, in my theological education, I'm at Fuller now, but in my theological education and in my, in my, um, in my spiritual formation in the Church of Christ, not, everything I've received has been from white males. Books from white males. Sermons from white males. I love my preacher now, though. Shane's awesome. But because um, he's, he's aware, a little more socially aware. But like, and so it was teaching me a certain way to think, forcing me into this box that I not, did not belong in. And, and that made me feel marginalized. I was like, why am I so different? But then I tapped into a network that opened my world. I found the Asian American Center at Fuller, a center dedicated to highlighting our unique stories at center of, of mentors and people and professors and theologians and pastors and students who are willing to stand beside you and say, you know, I've dealt with that. I'm going to encourage you. And I'll tell you what, I was brought to tears on so many occasions because I thought, are you kidding me? There are Asian American theologians? There are Asian American pastors? I can do this? I'm not different? Like, there are people who, who encounter similar things. And, of course, they're all different kinds of Asian Americans, right? There's Indian American. She's Japanese American. I'm Vietnamese American. Like, but th th they were intentionally, like, relating with me and encouraging me. So we have to find a way to pursue solidarity. 
most of the time I would encourage us to like branch out our thinking and we should, right? But in this case, minorities have to learn how to navigate a dominant space, which means their stories are often hidden. Our stories are often hidden. Our scholarship is often hidden. Um, and so my professors pointed me to um, Asian American theologians and black American theologians and Latin American theologians and so forth, where I was like, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. I could relate to this. I saw God in a wholly new way, a more relatable way. Right? And by, by, in, by pursuing solidarity, I was able to see that, whoa, like God is not just a white male who's American, who pledges allegiance, and the, who's a, a pledge of allegiance is not uh, like a part of his uh, identity. Like who, who's, you know, like God is like an Asian American God. Right? I was able to encounter a different God in Jesus. Um, and, so, and so what I would encourage us, what I would encourage you to is, is pursue solidarity. Pursue solidarity. Find mentors, extend your network, find people, find healthy social media groups, not social media groups that are incendiary, right? Um, reach out to people who can empathize with you, and I do that on a daily, no matter where I'm at. I am constantly in pursuit of um, people whom I can stand in, stand in solidarity with, whom we can encourage one another, sharpen one another, help each other find healing. Any questions on that? Well, I can I can let yeah. people answer. Anybody want to answer? Yes, sir. Hi, uh, I'm a minister of the Chinese House Church. I've been in the blood of the Latter Hey. <laughs> I graduated with my bachelor's and master's at Pepperdine in religion. I never heard the church in fact until I came here. But after I graduated my graduate degree, uh, I applied at eight different churches. I was told by each and every one of them, why aren't you preaching for your own people? Mm. So, in one case, uh, I even applied to be a part-time job, and they said, you're overqualified with your master's degree. So they hired a uh, Caucasian fellow, and he said, well, master, you're not going to stay with you. You're going to get quit on that. So they hired a, a young Caucasian preacher, and he worked for them for only four months, and he quit on them. Uh, he was a preaching school graduate. But I couldn't find a job in it. But I think the Lord was uh, guiding me. Uh, he guided me to go back to UCLA, get a credential in counseling. I worked at a Church of Christ school. As a counselor, I became an administrator, became principal. Then I went into the public school, and I retired uh, as a uh, career high school science teacher. But now that I'm retired, I spend my time in ministry working with a, a Chinese house church. Um, so you do encounter that. But I found that for me, as an older generation, I'm 68, going to be 69, older uh, generation Asian, best place just to get along. Mm -hmm. Because I came from a different time mm -hmm. than the younger generation. Mm -hmm. Just don't make waves. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. Now, one of the things you shared was that um, uh, the, the comment, why don't, why don't you preach for your own people, right? So this unwillingness to make space among the leadership or the resistance to make space in the leadership. Um, I will respectfully just push back just a little bit on don't make waves. I, I do respect that. I think there is some time for silence and a time for, um, for, for patience. But I think truth-telling, being, being open, right? And that was one of the things that I highlighted in this study, that the silence sometimes create the emotional turmoil that really hinders our uh, uh, emotional health. So um, I just want to, but I, I want to give, I want to move on, but I want to give Woody um, and then Shane. So I, I think um, as kind of recognizing 
I'm a little bit racist, but I'm not exactly sure where. And I know I'm racist in other places, and I've either learned to cleverly hide that or uh, work it through. Uh, that truth sharing piece is so important. Uh, you say like, hey, not cool. How come? Mm. Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, and that that is an educational formational piece that allows churches to be better. Mm. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage. Yeah. Especially when it's you know a, a person in power or or a boss or uh, somebody that has been at that church for forty years and has a lot of political clout. Uh, so that's that's probably the most effective way to bring people that are trying to do the right thing, but just mm. not clear on it towards a better reality. Not that we would get there, but we we can we can try. We can yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing, Shane. That's why I like you as my preacher, right? Shane makes a space to listen, and that posture is, is and that's a, a clear example of that humble posture um, so that we can pursue reconciliation and, and find God shalom together. Um, do you have a follow-up question? Yeah, quick? whenever I'm traveling and I visit other churches, mm-hmm. one of the first things I look for is, is there, are there other people besides just white Americans in this congregation? Mm-hmm. And if I... Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. So many don't. Right, right, right. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and, and so it is good. My church, I, I love my church because it's a multi-ethnic space, right? Um, but I also want to be clear that proximity does not equal um, reconciliation or, or awareness or grace or love, right? Uh, we can be very close and very racist towards one another. Um, so the illusion, it can create an illusion uh, that sometimes that, oh, we're better. In fact, every space I've been in was, we're not like them. Oh, we're the most diverse group. Uh, another church, oh, we're not like them. We're Californians. Yeah, another church, oh, we're not like, it's, oh, we're always scapegoating, right? Uh, and so admitting that, hey, we're, we're, we're all suffering from this brokenness. And so, Kyle, do you have your hand? You know, want to move on? Yeah, no, this whole conversation Thanks so much. And a lot of the unintentionality, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, deep uh, uh, roots in history that informs our language now. And so we just don't understand, like, I, I'm still in the process of learning, you know? I used to think, why the heck would I want to speak Vietnamese? Why are you speaking that language? You're in America. Why are you wearing that clothes? Why are you, right? Like, I internalized that myself. So we're all, the, the, that posture of learning, I think, is very important. So thanks so much, Kyle. I want to move on to our third point, engage, disengage and re-engage. So, so what do I mean by that? Um, again, sorry, long, long paragraph, but uh, from Henry Nouwen, the inner voice of love, he says, when you get exhausted, frustrated, overwhelmed, or run down, your body is saying that you are doing things that are none of your business. God, should be God. God does not require of you what is beyond your ability, what leads you away from God, or what makes you depressed. God wants you to live for others and live that presence well. And he goes on a little bit more. What does he mean? Doing so might include suffering, fatigue, and even moments of great physical or emotional pain. So he's not saying, like, 
pain is, is, is not inevitable, right? But he's saying none of this must ever pull you away from your deepest self and God. Uh, so, so what do I mean by that? There are moments when we have to disengage from dominant culture. And, and, and so we have to allow each other to have that space. Um, because it's exhausting. It's very exhausting trying to push back against the system. It's very exhausting trying to navigate these spaces. It's extremely exhausting. And so, and so it can get to the point where your relationship with God suffers, your emotional health suffers. And so you have to disengage. Take a step back from the dominant culture. Reserve that emotional and social energy. And so what I mean by that is this. I have gone to uh, a few lectures um, here at the conference, several of, of my friends who, who are white, but for the most part, I'm attending classes from people of color because I've spent years and years and years listening from one perspective and ignoring others. And I'm tired. I'm tired of listening and saying, like, and thinking, like, this, this only perpetuates this, or this only marginalizes this, or seriously, this is only your white normative framework. And for our white brothers or sisters, what we have is, like, dominant culture is white normativity, which I assume is normal, because it's your water that you swim in. But I'm a bird. So the water that you swim in that's normal for you can suffocate me. Dominant culture is not designed for um, ethnic minorities to flourish. And, you know, and, and this is the theology of the incarnation. Like, Jesus literally inherited, he, he discarded his privilege and inherited, like, weak, feeble flesh of a servant, right? I mean, so he wasn't like, hey, come and assimilate to this. He was like, I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to inherit this, this flesh. In this form of a Hebrew servant man. Um, I don't know. Go where. So reserve. So take a step back from that dominant culture. Find a way to re-engage with yourself. Pursue, you know, whatever it is that uh, pursue uh, women theologians and and uh, Latin American theologians and and find resources and connect with those people, right? And, and re-energize yourself. Reserve emotional and social energy. There's a time for silence. So I said, truth-telling is important, but there's a time for it. You cannot speak into everything. You just can't. Embrace a season of silence. Unfollow incendiary news outlets. I was following all kinds of news outlets because I wanted to be aware of all the stuff that was happening. I became so angry. That's just me, though. I'm high stress. And so I had to disengage from all of them. All of them, unfollow. And so sometimes you can take extremes, but this is the season of rest that I need. I, don't, I, can't, I can't handle it. It's, it's making my marriage, it's hurting my marriage, it's hurting my ministry, it's hurting myself, it's hurting my spirituality. Right? Take a step back and engage in healthy activities. Engage in healthy activities. Look, exercise. When you undergo stress, your body tenses up. It stores that stress and the pain. And when you exercise, you release it. You release that pain, right? By the way, for, for our white brothers and sisters, the, the taking a step back from the dominant culture, what I would encourage is giving us the space and being patient with us as we do that. Encouraging it even, right? Encouraging it even. Maybe not, don't take it personal um, because we're trying to embrace ourselves and, and thrive. So exercise really helps. Hobbies help. Therapy, I'm a big proponent for therapy. You've got to vent somewhere. You've got to find tools somewhere because you don't want to leak. You don't want to leak. You don't want to hurt other people. You don't want to hurt your, your family and, and, and dump all of that, that the, 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 the rage and, and the sin. You don't want to dump all of that on people. And I've done that, and I've hurt people. And, I, I, and I've, I've had to confess. Like, it's, it's just been counterproductive. Holy contentment. And so, you know, realizing that the kingdom of God is not fully here. So engaging in this celebration of God's reign in the here and now. That God's doing things in the world. 
Right? And so celebrating some of that pro uh, progress. Uh, Mexican theologian uh, Virgilio Elizondo says, the, the prophetic without the festive turns into cynicism and bitterness, or it simply fades away. <laughs> yeah, we love prophecy and truth-telling, and that's all important, but we've also got to be festive. We've got to celebrate what God is doing here and now. And so this isn't just a perfunctory, shallow, hey, let's just all be happy and not... You know, and let's just all be peaceful. No, it's just, we're, 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 we're in this battle, this war, this spiritual war, this physical war, and there's a season of rest. I'll finish this. You know what? Embrace your otherness. Embrace your otherness. What do I mean by that? Here's a quote, a beautiful quote from Maya Angelou that I've been meditating on for the last couple of years. You're only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place. You belong no place at all. What's Dr. Maya Angelou saying? deep theology here. Maybe we're never meant to even belong here in this current reality because we belong somewhere else, right? On a fundamentally theological level, we belong somewhere else or in a different reality. But we're here. We're here nonetheless. And so for me, one of the most powerful um, focuses of my, my theological studies is reclaiming marginalization with the theology of liminality, in-betweenness. That I think the theology of liminality, let me just say this, comes from people of color who, who experience this tension of not belonging. If I go to Vietnam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out of place. That's reality. But I'm not fully welcome here. I'm a perpetual foreigner here. So I'm in this in-betweenness, right? And a lot of people of color uh, identify with that. Peter Fon, in, in his article, Betwixt and Between, he's a Vietnamese-American theologian. He says, to be betwixt and between is to be neither here nor there, to be neither this thing or not, nor that thing. Spatially, it's to dwell at the per periphery or the boundaries. Politically, it means not residing at the centers of power of the two intersecting worlds, but occupying the precarious and narrow margins. Culturally, it means not fully integrated into and accepted by either cultural system. Being neither this nor that allows one to be both this and that. Persons at the margins stand not only between these worlds and cultures, but also beyond them. We are called to something beyond. Right? I do not need to identify as a white American Christian. And I have accepted my otherness and realized that I'm different and I love my food. And I don't care if you think it's smelly. Because <laughs> I love kimchi. And you know what, and I'm gonna celebrate that. But I also love, I love like American foods and, and I love Cajun foods, because Vietnamese migrated to uh, New Orleans, and so there's this fusion of Cajun culture, and I grew up in a black community. I used to try to identify as black, but that's not my story, I'm not black. Right, that identity crisis. And so you know what, I'm something else, I'm 10. I'm in between. 
And that's what we're called to occupy, the space of in-betweenness. And if we can embrace the otherness, Gloria Jean Watkins, or her pen name is Belle Hook, she's a social activist, uh, um, says, I make a def definite distinction between that marginality which is imposed by oppressive structures and that margin marginality one chooses as the site of resistance, as the location of radical openness and possibility. You see, it's reclaiming marginality. It's saying, okay, you, 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 you think you forced me into this space where I don't belong, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand here and I'm going to embrace it in light of the gospel. Liminality is a creative space of resistance and solidarity. I resist adopting a dominant narrative. I'm going to adopt a gospel narrative, and my story somehow intertwines with that. God's story intertwines with mine. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, Paul says to the Gentiles, in one body. And yet Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. I belong neither here nor there. The liminal space enables us to hold multiple worlds in tension. It's in this tension where we intimately encounter God. And it is a beautiful encounter. Um, and so embracing that otherness. I'm made in the image of God. I am who I am. God made me who I am. The culture has shaped me in such a way where, you know what, I'm a cultural hybrid. But in that space, I'm going to hold multiple worlds in tension, in, in tension because I'm not loyal to America. I'm not loyal to Vietnam. I'm loyal to God. Right. And in that space of liminality, you can see that clearly. Right? Liminal people can see this clearly. And I, and I want to bring it a little deeper. I don't want to minimize our people of color who have shaped this theology. I want to bring it a little deeper and say that all Christians should occupy liminal space because our Savior Jesus did. Jesus was not welcomed in his own hometown. Right? I mean, he was in a space of in-betweenness. And so marginalization reminds us that on a fundamentally theological level, we'll never belong in this current reality. We belong to the kingdom of God, fully revealed, and we should own it. And I'm owning it. And that's how I have tried to thrive, by owning this part of myself. I wore a Vietnamese garment, traditional Vietnamese garment, to, to church uh, for the couple weeks into, into my uh, um, job there. And it was the first time ever I was trying to own myself, making a public proclamation that I am unashamed of this part of me. And people were really encouraging. And they were saying, wow, that's awesome. And hey, what, what's the occasion? Ah. Interestingly, the people who are like, that's weird. We're the Asian Americans. Because they've internalized that dominant narrative. So I can't blame them. I can't blame them, right? Um, and so own it. Own it. Because when you own it, people can't hurt you. When you own it, people can't hurt you. Taking pride in that. Um, I want to leave space a couple minutes for questions, but here are some resources that you might find helpful. From a liminal place in Asian American theology, I hate that it's called Asian American theology, like it's some side thing. Uh, so my professor says we either don't name anything or label anything or we label everything. And so your theology, maybe uh, a lot of you, I have myself has in, have inherited a white theology, but this Asian American theology from a liminal place really sheds light on what that liminality is. And it's a lot more than just Asian American. It, it really includes a lot of narratives. The next evangelicalism by Soon Chan Ra is extremely powerful, and it shows how the, the danger of the dominant narrative has, has shaped us. Inner Voice of Love has, you can read that thing in less than an hour, but I encourage you to take two years to read it. Because it is so simple, yet so rich. So rich. Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. She studies vulnerability and courage. And my goodness, she has a lot to say. And reading the Bible from the margins helps you see scripture from a very different perspective. We only know what we know. And a lot of times, I, I'm guilty of reading the Bible from a dominant narrative. But when you learn how to read scripture from the margins, my goodness, it's rich. A few minutes. Any questions? Yeah. Okay. You talked about this. It got me thinking about, this is like uh, Margaret Bush who talks about cultures, and it talks about how 
when you uh, immerse yourself into another culture or another person's culture, there's a sense in which you cannot ever go back to your home culture. You experience this sense of disequilibrium where you're at home and neither place anymore. And there's a sense of loss. And you got me to thinking about as we open ourselves up to just kind of trying to look at, trying to embrace another person, understand them and see them as they are and accept them. There's a sense of which we're going to lose part of what we've always known about ourselves, mm -hmm. part of this identity that we've grown to accept that may be flawed and wrong, that may, we need to let go of, but sometimes that can be fearful, you know? And, and I think, I mean, you've got some incredible points, but you've just got me thinking culturally, and just this idea of, of experience disequilibrium, of never having a place that we can call home, mm -hmm. kind of this idea in Hebrews 11 about Abraham walking as a stranger, as a foreigner, as an alien, for the rest of his life. And, and I get a, I feel like all of us, no matter what race we are, we, we kind of get security from knowing that, boy, kind of here's who I am, and, and these are my people, yeah. and uh, I don't want to be alone. Mm. And this has been really, really good. You've got me to see some things about myself that I've just not been willing to accept before, and I'm mm. good. Thank you, brother. Thank you for sharing. How yeah. is your relationship with God? Yeah. What? You, uh, relationship, personal relationship with God. Yeah. How does that help you? So it, it's... It's hard, right? Because because I was inheriting a dominant narrative and living by that, it really obscured my relationship with God. God was more distant because God was a white American male. This has helped me draw a lot closer to God because God is, God is not bound by culture. God transcends culture, and yet God is relational and relevant and contextual. And so this has helped me see God in a way that it drew, it's drawn me a lot closer, a lot closer. Um, and so my relationship with God has is, is, been a big help in that as well because, again, that theology of liminality, knowing that I don't belong here, um, helps me embrace where I'm at. Maybe one or two more. Yeah, Shane. I love what you said about um, you know, kind of taking a step back and, and creating space before you, I forget the term you use, like disengage to reengage. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> can you give a, a, an example of how churches can give permission for that to happen or provide space for that to happen? What's, a, what's an easy way that a leadership can create that for? Ooh. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think one thing that you and some of our elders have done is when we're going through a very intense study of women's roles. And I said, I, I can't right now because it's too much for me. And, and what I really meant was, um, I don't wanna engage in this battle because I'm tired of engaging in cultural battles and I'm, I'm, it's, it's been hard for me to navigate spaces with white male, um, dominated, dominated by white males. Um, and so I need to take a step back so that I can so that I can collect myself and learn how to be patient. Um, and you've given me that space. So if that made sense, like you and the elders have given me that space and said, okay, you, you, you don't have to come to this. You don't have to speak into this. We can be silent if you want. That's me intentionally disengaging. Does that, is that a good example? I don't know. I'm curious if there's ideas of ways to do that. It's not just as a minister, but as just folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's really good, good like a mixture of people of color and 
um, it creates a safe space, but for three months, you cannot have any input into mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. The arguments there you, go. you have to go through before you contribute to the conversation, and your moderator, I'm actually one of them, to try to kind of uh, streamline so that we can create a good dialogue, but in this very safe place, especially for people of color who's been traumatized by some of the experiences. So that's, those are kind of public places where we can learn, everybody can learn without having to have to see people of color. That's perfect. So, and if you have any questions about the website, let me know because I would love to talk to you about it. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and yes, brother. Okay. Uh, see, last question. Uh, many of you may know Carl Mitchell, who's a former chairperson of the Division of Vision here at Pepperdine. He taught in a class that I was attending about reaching people with the culture. Because sometimes the best way to do it is a mature Christian individual of that cultural background, ask for their advisement and trust them. The problem with mission work in the past is that we would go to foreign countries, but we won't trust the leaders that they know what to do. So find someone who's a mature Christian leader of that respective culture and trust their recommendations. Um, there is a book that's not totally Awesome. Those are great resources. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate your hearts and thank you for being here.